The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty God, you are the ruler of all the earth, creator and sustainer of all that is, including each one of us. We come before you thankful that you have made a way for us to commune with you. Christ's cross has opened up access and you invite us to come into your presence and talk with you, to commune with you. Thank you. We do that now here in this moment. We come to you asking, will you, more than just giving us access, more than just giving us life with you and an inheritance kept in heaven, will you give us now your spirit to teach, to open up your word in front of us here this morning, to press truth into us, and to produce change from it. In many ways, Lord, this passage is stiff. It is hard. Will you make it clear in its difficulty? And will you make it sweet in its sternness? There's a path that leads to life, and will you help us now to see it, to understand it, and to press on walking it with you? Lord, I suppose this morning that there will be things that will raise questions that will be difficulties that will lead down rabbit trails in some of our minds. Will you steer the conversation that, not just the words that I'm saying, but the conversation that we will each be having in our own minds, will you steer the conversations to keep them on, on point here, that we can hear from you, understand you, and follow. So please, Lord, what I'm asking is will you teach? teach and build your church here with this passage this morning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Grow up your people. Correct us where needed. But encourage us and lead us. Do that this morning from your word we ask. And we pray in Christ's name for his good and for the good of his people, us, his church. Amen. Long, long ago, an old Christian rhetorically asked, is the Lord to be obeyed in whatsoever he commands? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is yes. On the other hand, many today would say instead, well, Lord, I've heard what you said, but that's pretty challenging and not so easy and not so popular. So here, tell you what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to follow you and serve you, Lord. No. No, you're not. Says Jesus in our passage here today in the end of Matthew chapter 7. It's that kind of a clear rebuttal. No. 
That's not how this works. I'm not making suggestions. I'm not sharing my thoughts or my ideas, my theories. There is my way and the condemned way. I speak commands that all people on earth are required to submit to and follow. I'm the Lord. That's what that word means, Lord. That's the final note struck here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a stiff one. Two weeks ago, in the middle of chapter 7, Jesus concluded the main body of this comprehensive sermon. We've been looking at it for months. It's a long sermon. It deals with many things. And he, and he kind of wrapped all that up with his final instructions on how he fulfills and explains the Old Testament requirements to us and how we are to hold to them and cry out to God for gracious help in that endeavor. To obey him is hard, and thankfully there is help available. He, he offers to help us walk with him. We will ask him, seek, and knock. And from there on, as we saw last week and then continuing on to this week, Jesus is pressing on us the sobering reality of the coming judgment of God over all of the earth based upon what he just taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 13 and 14, as we saw last week, are, are kind of like header verses for, for that section and for this section this morning, laying out in front of us two ways to live, two gates, two paths, two eternal destinies. There's one path, the, the path that is narrow and hard, the path of obedience to and dependence on Jesus, that's the path that leads to life. It's, it's, it's hard to walk that path for sure, but there, there's gracious help available to us, as we just saw in the middle of the chapter, but we are to walk it with him. That's the call. And then there's a second path, another option, the wide way that leads, unfortunately, to eternal destruction in hell. walking away from him and according to one's own ideas and desires. There are two paths, and he implores us, walk the narrow one. Walk with him, the Lord of life. Now today, in 21 and following, he concludes by pressing that same theme home once again. We must do what the Lord Jesus says. It's an obedience of faith, for sure. Faith lies beneath this. Faith is the foundation on which the obedience is built. We'll, we'll talk about that. But the path of true faith, the path that leads to life, is the path of obedience. And that's what he calls us to, as we'll see this morning. So let me read verse 21 through the end, the final words that Jesus spoke in this Sermon on the Mount. And then I'll draw out two observations from it. Matthew 7, beginning in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Matthew 7. So two observations, and here's the first, which is actually shorter and comes a little more from the end of the passage, but I think perhaps it's helpful to start at the end because maybe it prepares us to hear a little bit better the, the main second point. So here's the first. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven and the one judge of all the earth. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven and the one judge of all the earth. At the end, verses 28 and 29, Matthew comments that after Jesus had finished, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, it says. The crowds. Like I mentioned last week, this is different than the group of the disciples who were the main target audience of the sermon. There were crowds around. This is, an, this is an outdoor sermon. He's on the slope on the side of a hill. And so the disciples were drawn in closer. Those who had said, I'm one of yours, they'd come up closer. But there were crowds all around who could still listen in. And while he wasn't directly talking to them, they were catching it. And you could almost feel, as it were, here at the, at the end here, Jesus kind of lifting up his eyes and looking out at everybody else. Well, he says something that's a little different than something that he has said many times before. Most commonly, he has said, your father. As recently as verse 11, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And he's, and he's said this often to encourage his people, kind of making them aware that, hey, if you're a Christian, realize this. You are a child of God, and God is your father. And in this case, like, like any good dad, he wants to give the good that's needed. So ask him. He's trying to encourage his people, pointing out something. But in verse 21, you can almost see him looking up and saying, I can't talk like that with all y'all. And besides, that's not my point right now anyway. My father, he now says, that's different. My father stands over all the earth and is calling everybody to judgment. It is coming, so get ready for it. There's a little change there. And the crowds, maybe they keyed off of that. Because as we, we can read later in the Gospels that when Jesus uses that kind of language and talks about my father, what Jewish people heard in that was a unique claim to identity with God. They heard in that language a claim to be God. So maybe the crowds just heard that real quick little change and thought, what, what was that? Whoa, maybe that was it. But if not that specific thing, they'd heard everything else that he said, and they were astonished at the teaching of Jesus, not because it was clever or eloquent. But verse 29 
because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like their scribes. The scribes of Israel taught with constant reference to some other authority. Often it would be a, a previous rabbi, so-and-so says, so-and-so says, so-and-so says. And that gets old after a while. You don't feel like there's anything fresh coming there. So they're referring back to somebody, and even if eventually comes back to be attached to a scripture passage, like, so like Moses says, even there it's still one step removed from authority. But Jesus was different, and we see it right here. Verse 21, he doesn't say, the word of God says this, that, and the other if you want to enter heaven. He just says what he says. And he claims God as his father, distinct from everybody else. You were over there, and I'm here with my father. And he tells us all what we must do, the will of his father. And if we don't, Jesus himself, verse 23, Jesus himself will declare. That's a word like pronounce a verdict. Jesus claims for himself the seat of judgment. I will declare, depart from me, as if he's the goal we're trying to get to, and then might be thrown away from. Go away from me, for you did not do the will of my Father. And actually, watch this, verse 24. Actually, the issue is not just doing the will of my Father in heaven. It is hearing and doing my words. And grammatically, the emphasis is on my. My words. The will of my Father in heaven, my words, same. Just like how we saw earlier in chapter 6 where Jesus repeatedly said, you've heard people say all kinds of things, but I say to you, that's, that's the language of the kingdom's king, assuming the right to say, here's the truth. Here's what goes. This word from this one is binding he tells us what's true, what we must do, and if we don't, he'll throw us out of his own presence. Now, we'll talk more about what it is that he actually says in a moment, but notice the underlying posture right here in all this. This is what the crowds heard and were astonished at. This is capital A authoritative. Completely different from any human Bible teacher. I, if, if I'm teaching the Bible as I always am here, I have to always say, judge what I say by what's written right here. And only follow whatever I say if it, if it matches with what's written right here. And Jesus just says, do what I say, period. That is astonishing. It's, it's cold wind, and if it catches you flush in the face, it just takes your breath away. It is so stiff. There is no room at all here in this passage or anywhere else in any, in any part of the Bible for calling Jesus some sort of a good teacher or, or a really nice, caring man or a wise philosopher or a, a, a holy spiritual leader. That's nonsense. 
This kind of authority is God in the flesh. This is the second person of the one triune God standing here as a person from heaven, both feet on earth, talking to people on the side of a hillside. The one through whom and for whom all things were made, the one who sustains every atom and every molecule of anything anywhere. It's right here on this page, but at that moment was, was standing right there in the dirt and telling them something with breathtaking authority. This is the one who made everything and is telling people what is going to come from him, judgment. I'm going to take everything and wrap it all up, like wad it up like a garment, wash it clean and then make it all new. And that's coming. Be careful. Get ready for it. Which means every other theory about who Jesus is is wrong. And every other religion that's not centered on this biblical Jesus is wrong. got to be really clear about that before we see what exactly it is that he says. We have to be clear on that, both for encouragement, but also perhaps for correction, especially if you're not quite sure what you think about this Jesus yet. Please hear this. And I hope the danger here is that as he says something that is that stark, and as I say it myself starkly, the danger here is that somebody will hear this as like, as if like a big guy is putting his finger in your chest and, yeah, don't hear it like that. If that, get, if, that, if that got lost in my incorrect tone, please don't hear it like that. Hear it as, this is the reality. This is what's coming. And I'm telling you now to help. Because when it comes, there's going to be nothing you can do about that. But I'm telling you now so that if you find in you some resistance to this biblical Jesus, some misunderstanding, that you can fix it right now. He means this to be clear for help. He means this to be graciously clear now for help. Please hear it like that. But hear in it also urgency. It's help that must be heard. This is true. That's who he is, and judgment is coming. Now, the passages that follow show his authority, kind of reinforcing his right to talk like this, as in particular does the resurrection that's yet to come. But everything is at stake in what this one says. This is God come in flesh to tell us the truth. Hear him. We start there at the end because what he says is, is maybe pretty hard to hear. He has the right to say it. Not to rub our noses in it, but to clarify, to be extremely clear for our help. He's the king of the kingdom and the judge of all the earth. Hear him. In particular, when he says, here's the second observation, the main one, the longer one, 
that the only life that will survive the judgment is one of obedience to Jesus. The only life that will survive the judgment is one of obedience to Jesus. Verse 21, Jesus mentions people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, something he repeats in verse 22. And while it, of course, is the same address in both those verses, they mean something a little bit different. They're, they're kind of a bit different here. 22 talks about how on that day, meaning at the day of judgment, people will say, Lord, Lord, very end. But before that, in verse 21, the grammar is a, a continual ongoing who will be saying to me, who will throughout all of time be saying to me, Lord, Lord. Before the day of judgment, on and on through these many days, there are people who call Jesus Lord, evidently quite willingly so. There are probably people who know the story of Jesus, who know the teaching of Jesus, who, who know the claims of Jesus, and are willing to own all that for themselves in some way. No problem with that. They think of themselves as his disciples. They're not rejecting him and scoffing at him. They're not, they're not pushing him away. Quite the contrary, they prophesy in his name. Cast out demons and do many mighty works, probably meaning supernatural works. We could probably add into that, including other things that are, we might call them like hard and challenging ministry endeavors. Maybe something like, raising a ton of money or building a very large church building or gathering together a very large church congregation or building a hospital and a mission field in a foreign country or something just remarkable that we would marvel at and say, that, wow, God must be in that. Look, look, what, look what God did. Jesus mentions that at the end, they'll, they'll point back at their track record and he doesn't deny that, so seems to assume that it's all accurate. That stuff actually happened. Which is really noteworthy. These are people who know things about Jesus and their lives are marked by amazing spiritual encounters. Things about Jesus that are amazing spiritual encounters. And surely they think they're Christians headed to heaven. They will call Jesus Lord and do amazing things for him through their lives and such ones on that day at the end will raise the same profession, Lord, Lord, and point at their past. Look at all the stuff that I did in your name, Lord. And he will say to them, who are you? I don't know you and never did. Who are you? I don't know you. I never knew you. This is not, notice, this is not a loss of salvation. This is a never had in the first place. I never knew you. And so depart from me. A fearsome and awful declaration. Depart. Go away to hell. You worker of lawlessness. That is, you sinful lawbreaker. And the person will reply, what, what do you mean, worker of lawlessness? I, I was a worker of miracles. 
I was a worker of demon fighting, a, a worker who labored to preach and to teach and to prophesy. What do you mean, worker of lawlessness? Feel the shock in that. Feel the shock in that. This is going to come as a great surprise to many. But here it is in the words of Jesus in the Bible so that it won't come as a great surprise to you. If, as you think this all through, you see something of this applies to me, then, then you can address it now. God might use anyone or anything as a tool to teach his word or perform a miracle. God spoke through a donkey to Balaam. You know the Old Testament story? That wasn't a Christian donkey. That was just a beast. <laughs> it was just a beast, right? God used an animal as his instrument to prophesy. Being used by God is irrelevant. It proves nothing. Not everyone who knows about me, not everyone who knows the truth, not everyone who is orthodox in belief even, maybe even is used by God, used as an instrument to point others towards the Lord even. Not everyone like that is actually walking the narrow path that leads to the kingdom of heaven. Who is then? How can you tell? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's what Jesus says explicitly. That one will safely enter the kingdom. Only that one. So, very naturally, verse 21, the wise person would be careful to hear those words of Jesus as he reveals all of God's will here in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere he has more to teach later, of course. The wise person would hear this sermon and then do what he says. That's the emphasis, that's the point, do. Notice the parallel of do the will of the Father and do these words of Jesus, same. God's will is revealed in the words of God's prophet, God's king, Jesus the Lord. To do them is like building your house, your life on the rock, the bedrock that's under the surface. Any, any builder knows that you've got to fasten the house to the rock, not just fasten the house to the dirt on top of the rock. Or sand in this case, even worse. The illustration from the last few verses is obvious, and Jesus uses it in this context because there's a storm coming. Not just the troubles and trials and storms of life, though that would apply also, but what he's talking about is the storm of judgment. One house, one life will stand at the judgment and one will fall with a great fall, he says. So be wise and realize that there are two paths here, two destinies, one of standing and one of great falling. The difference between the two is not just did you hear Jesus' sermon, Jesus' words, which show us the will of God, but did you do them, verse 21, or not do them, verse 26. That's the pivot. Both heard, did you do or not do? 
path that stands in the judgment is the life of obedience to the Lord. Because this is so very important, let's be extremely clear about that. He expects that we will hear what he taught, understand it, believe what he says about what is at stake, life with him, destruction in hell. That's what's most importantly at stake. Life eternal with him, destruction eternal in hell. We'll hear that, believe that when he talks about that, that's actually true, and that's actually what's at stake, and then exercise our wills to make decisions to do what he said. Especially the hard stuff. Not a good solid 85% of it. Probably the 15% that was hardest. Focus there, start there. That all is abundantly clear and it calls for wise, careful commitment. We must obey what he taught. That's the only path that leads to heaven. So examine yourself in light of the Sermon on the Mount here. We're not going to walk back through the whole thing, but it would be really wise to not only familiarize yourself with it, but to remain familiar with all that he taught here from the beginning on through. And as you see it then, and you notice the log in your own eye, perhaps then repentance is in order and, and, and resolve to walk, to obey in that one thing right there that was hardest. And certainly, now, if, if somehow or another you kind of dozed off or daydreamed a little bit there, come back and hear this part because this is super, super important. The other was also. But this is important, and perhaps this is now where we're going into something that some of us are theologically wondering about. Hmm. You look at the sermon, you understand what he teaches, you see where you fall short, repentance and resolve to, to think through, exercise your will and say no or say yes, to act out, to do what he says. And here's more of what it would be to do what he says. We resolve to follow him not just by trying harder to resolve to follow him. This is a really big point. This is the key part of what Jesus taught that keeps everything else that he taught from becoming some sort of work salvation. It becomes, this, this part I'm going to talk about here in just a moment, I'm going to try to be really, really clear about this. This is the key part that keeps everything else and everything that I've said so far this morning from becoming some sort of I obey my way into heaven teaching. That is always a great danger when we start talking about or see the Bible talking about an emphasis on obedience because it's, it's wrong. It's heresy, actually, to believe that I can obey myself into being pleasing to God. And it's so dangerous that oftentimes what Christians do is they run as fast as they can away from anything like that and never talk about obeying at all. Then you bump into a passage like this and you say, what do I do with this? I mean, Jesus is like blunt and heavy in the bluntness and clear. I don't know what to do with that, so you skip it. We can't do that either. 
So we can't commit the heresy of teaching that we obey ourselves into heaven, nor can we commit the heresy of running away and acting as if obedience doesn't matter. What do we do? Well, here. Jesus taught a lot of commands here. And he taught, and I mean those commands for real. And I mean those commands deeper than you take them. I'm not just talking about don't commit adultery. I'm talking about don't look at a woman with lust in your heart. What crazy person thinks that he can obey himself into pleasing God then? Which man in the room? Don't raise your hand. Because we know you're a liar. And a bunch of the women too. When Jesus says, just to pick one, pick murder and anger if you like, pick faithfulness to your vows if you like, pick one. Pick the 85%, the 5%, the 2% that's hardest for you. When Jesus says that, do that, I mean that double, triple deeper than you ever thought. I mean in your heart. Don't ever lust after a woman. Don't ever call your brother, brother a moron. Or you're going to hell for that. I mean these commands all the way down. What man or woman in the room can say, I'm going to obey myself into heaven then? You're crazy. So what he also said, do you remember? Where am I going to go here? Poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, asking and seeking and knocking help. Those are also the words of Jesus in the sermon. While he says, and obey what I said, all of it. So we come before picking lust. We come before lust and say, Oh, that is wrong. Oh, I am guilty. I'm, I'm not going to say that I can obey myself into heaven. But there's the fight. I have to walk after purity in heart. God, help me. Asking, seeking, knocking, crying out. God, help me. Both of those, the fight against lust, the fight against anger, the fight for faithfulness, etc., etc., etc. That and also God help me. God help me. I hunger and thirst to be different than I am and I can't make myself different. I'm poor in spirit. I'm small. I'm mourning over my own sin. Help! That's the Sermon on the Mount. Only the Christian can do this. Because only the Christian has the Spirit of God living in him or her. Only the Christian has the promise, your Father in heaven, your Father in heaven will hear and give the help that you need to grow you up into maturity. We don't obey to become his. We obey because we are his. We don't obey to please him. We obey from his pleasure. It's really easy to get it wrong, to get it backwards. Or to cut off half of it and only talk about one part. But we have to say, it is from faith that we obey. It is, from, it is from faith that we grow up into maturity. It is from faith that we walk after him. A different way of putting it. If you have the joy of seeing a newborn baby, 
From the very beginning, you realize this baby has zero coordination, can't do anything, just lying there flailing around and crying. And somehow or another, by 16, that baby can drive a car. And before then, run and walk and crawl and surf and crawl and push backwards and push forward and push up onto their hands and roll over. There, there's a progression there that is quite natural given the nature of the thing. This baby, you know, will one day roll over and push up and push backwards and crawl and surf and stand and walk and run and drive because of what it is. But every one of those steps along the way is going to involve engagement of the mind and an exercise of the will and the muscles. The baby doesn't, can't, just lie there on its back and say, hope to drive one day. Every step along the way, there is an engagement of the mind. There's a recognition of what is good. I want to try that, and a reaching for it, and then a crawling towards it, and a grabbing it, a surfing along the edge of the couch to get to somewhere, a running down the street. There is everywhere along the engagement of the mind, the seeing what is out there, the exercise of the will and the muscles to go, all in accordance with the nature of the thing. And if that doesn't happen, something's wrong. That thing does not crawl, stand, walk, run to become a human being. It does so because it is already a human being. The nature has been put in and it just comes out. Now every analogy breaks down at some point. Of course, there are people who struggle with those things, who have difficulties with them. That's where the analogy breaks down. But we know those difficulties, those struggles, that's something wrong that needs to be fixed, corrected medically. It's not proper, it's improper, it's incorrect. Something's off. The natural progression given the nature is that the mind and the body and the muscles will be engaged to walk in a certain direction because of what the thing is because God put new life into you, because of that, you can and must walk. Not to become his, but because you are his. Put it a third way still. The only person who hears this sermon and can actually keep it like Jesus taught it, not perfectly, we still mourn all the way to the end of our lives, but who can keep it not trusting in myself and my own abilities, but hungering and thirsting for righteousness to be given and asking for him to give it. The only person who can do that is the person who has the Spirit of God at work within him or her. And that's what the Spirit does in a person. Works out this salvation in you. Not to work for it, 
to work it out. Now, all of this is not crystal clear right here because the cross has not happened, the resurrection hasn't happened, Pentecost has not happened. It doesn't have all the same details in there like, like Paul would later, talking about how the Spirit works in us to transform us by renewing our minds. Yeah, that's in Paul, not in, not in the Sermon on the Mount, because it hasn't happened yet. But what we see here in seed form is the law of God taught that points us to the need for the grace of God to be given. That's how the Bible works. Law leading to grace. This right here is the beginning. It is the essence of the gospel of grace that God gives to us to make us righteous in his sight, to make us righteous in heart, and to make us to walk out a righteousness that is far superior to that of the Pharisees who just tried to do it and tried harder and harder to do it. Now, I tried to explain that in three different ways. If that is still confusing, I'd love to talk about it further later. It's important that we understand that so as not to commit a theological misstep or, in fear of a theological misstep, not talk about obedience at all. But Jesus doesn't actually go into all the theology here. What he lays his finger on is simply, we must walk in obedience. And talk is cheap. You say you're a Christian. You say you know me. You say the Spirit's at work in you. Great. Show me by the fruit. Not the fruit of ministry usefulness. The fruit of Christ-likeness. Show me by the fruit. You say, you say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to ask you do, you, do you know who I am? Do you know what that means, first of all? Okay, yes. Well, then tell me about the fight against lust and against anger. Tell me about faithfulness. Tell me about turning the other cheek, surrendering your rights and loving your enemies and, and giving in private even when it hurts. And tell me about your private prayer life and, and seeking devotion to me and setting aside of the earthly treasure in, in the belief that what's in heaven and coming is lasting and real. Look there. Look at your heart. And then look at the hands that act out the heart. Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Not perfectly, increasingly. Like a baby growing up, are you increasingly growing? Not arrived. None of us will ever arrive not until we get to heaven. And ultimately, the only person who ever did this perfectly was Jesus, who built his house on the rock, survived the storm, and then was cast down anyway. That's, that's the heart of the gospel. That, that's what we need. I'm the lawbreaker, not him. But he died to provide a righteousness for me and for you, for all who trust him. The grace of God that came in Christ at the cross saved us and, to quote Titus, also came to train us to renounce ungodliness and to walk the narrow way with him all the way home.
This Sermon on the Mount is beautiful and amazing and deep and crushingly convicting if you read it. I mean, read it. And also beautifully hopeful if you read it. I mean, read it. So see in this sermon what is deep and hard and what is beautiful and hope-giving. See in it a king who commands while also being the savior who came to help. Hear that. Believe him. Do what he said. Walk the path in pursuit of righteousness, hungering and thirsting, asking, seeking, knocking for help. Not depending on your own self, your own strength, but on his and his alone. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.